This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Planet of the Forced Binary. Hello and welcome to Watches of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show that could ask, but then you might say no. <gasps> that sounded way less creepy in my head. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> my name is Gap, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we have what may consider to be the best episode of the first season. I don't know if I fully agree. It is up there. But I don't know if yeah. I fully agree. It's the it's like the best episode of the first season. Yeah, there's uh, you know, a few others that I'd say are definitely in contention, but uh, it is a pretty solid episode overall. Yeah, there's my favorite episode, which we're not going to hit for a bit, which is horrible. It's stupid, but I love it because it's stupid. <laughs> hmm, I wonder which one that is. Hmm. <laughs> so, actually, I guess we're going to hit it soon, thinking about it. But anyway. <laughs> anyway, I can't remember where we are in our recording schedule. I'm all screwed over. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's it's been a weird uh, year getting the these uh, recorded early, and so we can have like a nice, good, long of uh, episodes for everybody. But it also means that we're lost in time and space. Oh gosh. Yeah. Who knows what's going to be happening by the time this comes out. Yes, uh, we could be, you know, who knows? Maybe everything within this particular episode is irrelevant forever because computers have melted. All right, so this episode is the one with the weird computer people. Yep. It's called 11001001. It sounds almost musical when you say it like that. Yeah, kind of. They they don't say it very often. It's a weird name. It's like the it's an amalgamation of all the side characters' names because they're all named binary things. Yes. Hmm, it seems they are obsessed with zeros and ones. That reminds me of a Nine Inch Nails song, actually. Anyway. <laughs> it's also somewhat interesting uh, because it does some somewhat indicate that they are still using binary code this far in the future, mm -hmm. which uh, has some severe structural limitations as far as raw computing power goes and possibly suggests that they are not, in fact, using quantum computers. Indeed. Well... Unless all their quantum computers are all just about spin states of electrons, then, you know, there's ups and downs. But why aren't you factoring in things like, uh, you know, the orbitals and things like that, too? Come on, yeah, guys. Yeah, but how would, how would that be any better? Well, uh, you could have single uh, atom uh, memory units. Yeah. <laughs> would it? If you have to use one electron for everything and still doing an up-down spin state, isn't that exactly the same as an on-off? <laughs> but yeah the totality of quantum computers is a, a much more complicated uh, subject than uh, we probably have time to go into uh, you know detail here but uh, you know this is yeah, sort of the minimum amount of physical memory you can build uh, in anything uh, that we are able to sort of suss out in terms of you know how would you actually do it and be able to read it without you know some sort of large particle accelerator Oh, okay. Yeah. So we could have faster <laughs> computers. They would just require a particle accelerator. Yeah, yeah it's just so I need to figure out what the uh, you know uh, the color uh, coding of this uh, particular muon is here, and uh, give me a few uh, moments, and you know a, a massive amount of power to accelerate the speed of light. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know the actual quantum computers is uh, you know it, the it's 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 less about the memory storage and more about how you are computing things, which 
are different things, technically. Uh, we aren't going to be talking about the writers particularly, because both of them we had recently. Uh, Robert Lewin co-wrote Data Lore, and Maurice Hurley was the head writer for this entire part of TNG, so he's going to show up a lot. Yes. No point in going over them over and over and over and over. We have <laughs> uh, some guest stars. Not they've, We've got a lot, but there's only a few important ones, so those are the ones I'm focusing on. Yeah, I got maybe some notes on the others, but yeah. <laughs> we have Carolyn McCormick, who plays Minuet. She's best known for a later role as Elizabeth Oliver on Law & Order, which I, I do not watch, so I have no idea who that is. I think uh, it's one of those sort of side characters, like we need an expert or something like that, maybe? Probably. Uh, also played the same character on the many, 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 many Law & Order spinoff shows. Mm-hmm. And she's later going to be brought back for an episode of season four of next gen yeah yes uh and playing the same character technically right more or less yeah yes <laughs> gets complicated there but yeah sort of yeah she was also uh, notable for being a uh, ada rita F- uh, fiore uh in spencer for hire which you know uh also uh has in it a a, a character uh played by uh you know, a future star trek uh captain avery books plays hawk in that <laughs> we also have an actor that we've uh, that we've seen before which hasn't happened mm-hmm. that often yet gene dinarski as quintros the admiral captain dude who shows up i can't remember i'm sorry <laughs> it doesn't <Yes>. actually say <laughs> why doesn't it say shouldn't his rank be included in this casting cast list somewhere anyway uh, commander uh, yeah he's a rank of commander oh well then why does he get to call shots well, he's commander of the star he had a bad so. idea and he should be fired <laughs> anyway he's a longtime star trek guest star he was one of the miners from mud's women mm-hmm. and um that dude that you forgot existed from mark of gideon yep <laughs> in an episode that people barely barely remember mm-hmm. thankfully so it was bad very yeah. bad <laughs> uh he, he also uh after this role uh, pl- uh played a character in command and conquer red alert oh joseph Stalin. Oh, he played Stalin. <laughs> <laughs> I only know one th- one thing from Command and Conquer Red Alert. It's space. <laughs> With Tim Curry. <laughs> yeah, because Tim Curry is the national treasure. Mm-hmm. And I will watch anything with Tim Curry, in- including cutscenes from an old video game. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I got an episode of Lex to show you then. <laughs> it's, it's really awkward, though, this problem. <laughs> Lex is just awkward overall. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one with the giant bug ship, right? Uh, yes. Okay, yeah. It blows up planets. Yeah. Anyone who doesn't know, Lex is a really weirdly awkward, overly sexual sci-fi show with a spaceship that looks like a giant, um, that looks like a giant dragonfly. Um, you can look it up. It's, it's strange, and I don't know if I would recommend watching it, because I watched two episodes and then stopped and never went back. I... If anything, uh, I'd maybe recommend uh, the last couple episodes of season two through season three and then stop. <laughs> <laughs> the first episode does have like the best weird out of nowhere song. Yeah. The first, the awesome first thing that. the people, the, the like warrior race people from the, from the show just show up and sing a really kick ass song. <laughs> and then, then it's downhill from there. Oh, 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 oh,
Yeah, I do think I still have it memorized, too. <laughs> yeah, anyway, uh, Star Trek, not Lex. I guess we'll pre- we'll have to do a, like a one-off with that or something. Maybe we'll make Jesse watch it. Anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're going to feel awkward, and uh, we need some help with this. Uh. So Kate Boyer plays Zero One, who's one of the binaries. There's a lot of these, these little buggers running around, mm-hmm. but there's only two who really have any particular speaking lines yes so boyer was in a lot of small cult films something called tape heads uh small sci-fi movie by steven spielberg um hmm. also had parts in the lost world jurassic park minority report and uh, tv shows against cis and x-files sliders millennium babylon 5 got little error thing really yeah all that stuff any of that she was in white dwarf all, basically all the sci-fi. It's that thing. There's only like six sci-fi actors. <laughs> they just keep reusing them forever. Yeah, once you are any character in, in any iteration of Star Trek, you are also in Babylon 5, Sliders, this, that. Any, <laughs> any, any 90s, early 2000s sci-fi show, you are there. Yes, and you might end up on a, you know some sort of a cop show too, like Law and Order. So. Yeah, the good version of Outer Limits. <laughs> And Alexandria Johnson, who plays One Zero. Yes, uh, yeah, also a few things, not as many though. Yeah, it was in stuff like Remington Steel, Hill Street Blues, some made-for-TV movies. Yeah, uh, Moonlighting, New Heart, uh, L.A. Law, hence the mention of cop shows. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, there's also Ivy Lane and Kelly Ann McNally, uh, who weren't into much other than this. So, so. The episode. No, 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 no. But before we go, though, I do want to mention real quick the band, though. The band? Uh, Ron Brown. Yeah, the band. Yeah, because uh, Ron Brown didn't wasn't in much, but uh, Abdul Salam El Razak, uh, the bass player, uh, is uh, still acting as of a couple years ago, at the very least. Uh, uh, you know, is in numerous, numerous TV and uh, uh, film roles, uh, including the John Larroquette Show. Um, but, uh, I guess perhaps, uh, more recognizable is Jack Seldon, the, uh, uh, piano player, uh, because, uh, he was the, uh, uh, you know, various, uh, other roles, uh, like, uh, the president in Johnny Bravo. Um, uh, also he was in Dragnet 1967. And also he was in one of the most important roles of all time. He was the bill in schoolhouse rock. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I completely forgot the the holographic band. <laughs> I I kind of blanked uh, out the entire holodeck section of this episode, which is a good ninety percent of it, honestly. Yeah, so it's gonna be a short short uh, synopsis then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I just have the schoolhouse rock stuck in my head because, of course, I want to go back to Bronan G. <laughs> oh, hey, oh, oh, Bronan G. <laughs> All right, so the Enterprise is in space dock for general maintenance and upgrades, including upgrading the holodeck because it tried to kill people the last time they used it. Mm-hmm. So maybe fix that. And also the computer will be upgraded by the introduced race of the episode, and only this episode, the species known as the Binars, supervised by Commander Quintus. Well, uh, so uh, we're basically getting around to that computer maintenance fa- finally. Hooray! Finally. <laughs> So Quantrus explains that the Binars are a genderless humanoid species that over the millennia have integrated their society so much with computers that they basically are a 
uh, cyborg species at this point. They're inexorably linked with their central computing system. Mm -hmm. And uh, each two of them is sort of linked together in sort of a uh, a singular unit, so they have two heads better than one sort of powers going on. Yeah, thus the binars. Mm -hmm. There's always two of them. The two that we're introduced to here are 1-0 and 0-1. You know, Picard gives us the ticking clock for the episode because they have 48 hours to go do a thing that can't be delayed, you know, mission stuff. (laughs) It's like, oh, yeah, there's always uh, the neutral zone's going to melt or something like that, you know. <clears throat> the Barnars think it'll be a tight schedule, but they can definitely complete the upgrades in those times. But they do seem weirdly nervous, but who knows? Maybe that's just the way they act. Yeah, some aliens, are just, maybe they're just nervous all the time. Oh, gosh. So the crew now has 48 hours of free time. So they all start heading off to the uh, space station to do stuff. Picard head back to his quarters, do some reading. Riker thinks something interesting will happen because he's Riker. Mm-hmm. Okay, he's on the prowl. Yeah, he keeps asking a bunch of people to do stuff, and they're all busy, because they're all doing other things, you know, just for fun. <laughs> they made plans, those fools. <laughs> Since the time's so short, the Binars need to bring more team members on board, so they bring on lots and lots of Binars. Riker's a bit suspicious, um, but he can't really put his finger on why, other than they're acting deeply suspicious. Mm-hmm. But, you know, once again, these are aliens. You know, you shouldn't really be able to, uh, you know, estimate their actual emotional responses and uh, behaviors based on human ones. But, you know, Star Trek. Riker runs into a bunch of people. We get to learn what everyone's doing with their free time. Riker's a bit of a douche to some of them, but, you know. So he runs into Tosh and Worf, who are going to play Parisi's Squares. I think this is the first time they mention Parisi's Squares. We never actually get to so, see yeah. the game or learn anything about it other than it is incredibly dangerous. Yes, incredibly dangerous, uh, potentially violent, and, uh, you know, if you're not careful, you can get horribly crippled or killed. So, you know, yeah. be careful, guys. Uh, he tries to convince Worf not to kill the Starbase team, but um, <laughs> uh, Tosh is pretty sure that Worf is just joking. <laughs> Fingers crossed on that, though. <laughs> and parts of the ship are being shut down to facilitate upgrading stuff. Hmm, why is there a power loss? <laughs> Next up, Riker runs into Geordi and Data. I do kind of like the, the... I wish there was more of that in this episode instead of the later holodeck stuff. It's just kind of fun to follow Riker around. Like, what are you doing with your free time? <laughs> like, oh, I'm, I'm doing this thing. You know, I'm building a model of the Titanic. You know, whatever. <laughs> so Geordi and Data are working on Data's ability to be creative because Data is starting to paint, which is something that comes up over and over and over in this. Uh, there's a bit mm-hmm. of a joke about how a blind man's teaching an android paint. Yep. <laughs> Neither of them seem to enjoy it. Riker's 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 in a mood. Riker's yeah, having like, a normal I, one. Yeah, he, he's he's like, I, I want to do stuff, but no one's free. Gosh. He runs into Crusher, who's going to meet one of her heroes aboard the Starvase, and has a lot of uh, paperwork. So you know, Riker's alone. Can't get anyone to do anything with him. I, I do give uh, you know you know this bit uh, you know this encounter with a uh, uh, Crusher there. Uh, a lot of props because she's like so often the series like just serious or you know concerned or something like that but she's like excited happy it's like i'm gonna go do a thing this is great i'm gonna bye <laughs> it's also great to see ever like this is something that i also really liked from lower decks like mm-hmm. people who are in this position they've spent so much of their lives working towards this very specific very sciencey career they're excited for weird nerdy shit yep <laughs> it's like yes that is the kind of person who would do this 
someone who is weirdly <laughs> obsessed with how alien molecular structures function. This is so awesome. Uh, bye. <laughs> so Riker's now alone. So he's just going to try out the new holodecks because they've recently been updated by the binars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, here's some binars right here. Hey, how's the updates going? Ah, so the binars like, okay, it all works. Good, 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 good. You stay, just stay. We're going to leave now. Nothing suspicious going on here. Nope, not at all. Bye. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and uh, some of the looks between the binars is like, you know, it's like, hmm. Yes, uh, we're, he's falling into our obvious trap, but, you know. He's really bored, so it's going to work mm. easily. So, away with us. Yeah, they set the holodeck <laughs> to bored and horny. <laughs> it's like, all right, how do we make this perfect for the situation? Well, he's either going to need something to entertain him or entertain him in a different way. So, yes, poke the button. <laughs> yeah, so he calls up a bar because he wants to play some jazz. So it's an old-timey jazz bar. Uh, there's a pretty lady in dress. Mm-hmm. So spend a lot of time dictating the look and positioning of the pretty lady it's just way too much but yeah we, we uh you know f- f- you know kind of realize yeah that uh you know uh, Riker's interest in brunettes is not just with Troy yeah yes so the pretty lady in the holodeck is minuet Riker starts flirting the binars work on the holodeck controls suspiciously I'm like yeah mm-hmm. yeah tune that in make that bigger you know, cinch the waist yes. a little bit okay yes and uh you know, all the stuff to make, you know, uh, talk to him in the right sort of sultry that keeps his attention forever. Hooray! So, on the bridge, Wesley's asking exposition questions about the binars. Like, their language is super sped up, and then they buffer it and then get in the information later in a drip feed. Uh, doesn't sound like a way you could actually communicate, but sure. Yeah, uh, I do kind of appreciate them using Wesley in this sort of role here, and I kind of wish they would have used him more in this. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm a young person and inexperienced with all this weird stuff out in space, so maybe I could be here to ask questions. I'm learning. He can be the resonant <laughs> yeah. cabbage head. Exactly. You always need the one guy to ask the stupid question, and they could give it to Wesley instead of the person who's supposedly competent. Yes. <laughs> It's like, yeah, you know, it's, it's like Wesley might be, you know, super genius, but he's inexperienced. So, you know, he needs information in order to pull off the uh, magical thing of the week. So he's like, oh, that's really cool. You guys, you guys have some advantages. I'm like, yes. And some disadvantages. Hmm. Yes. We can never have any private time. <laughs> Speaking of private time, Ranker's getting more infatuated with Minuet in the holodeck. They dance, they talk. She's good at everything, like probably kissing and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, right yeah. before they're going to do anything interesting, Picard decides to show up. Yes, uh, it's like, hey, uh, I see you are uh, obviously engaged in some sort of lewd uh, holodeck program here, but uh, I want to come in and hang out for a bit. Is that he cool? comes and hangs out. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I interrupted. <laughs> and Riker's like, oh no, I'm into this for some reason. <laughs> so uh, you know, maybe Riker's like, mm, maybe a threesome, and maybe get someone from the band. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, like all. Like all horny Starfleet officers, Riker is inherently bisexual, but mm-hmm. I never got a vibe with him and the captain. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently no one else ever did either because I have seen all of the shipping and th- that is not there. Yes. Uh, yeah, but th- there is, uh, you know, maybe some uh, almost in-universe shipping that happens, but it's so subtle you can miss it. So Menuet now flirts with Picard, but this time in French. Say bien. It's also impressed at the realistic computer situation. He's like, "Oh, you speak French?" It's like, "Yeah, 
The computer knows yep. what French is, dude. <laughs> it's like, and I'm basically the computer, so, you know. This is still when they haven't decided how holograms are supposed to work. Indeed, and uh, I guess this is also still the era where French is a uh, obscure dead language. So, <laughs> so back on the ship, Wesley's identified a problem with the magnetic containment of the warp core. Dave hmm. and Jordy head to engineering to find that they've got about 15 seconds before the ship blows up. It's bad. Yeah, so uh, we should probably leave. They abandon the ship and set course far away from the starbase. The crew beam off of the ship. Uh, the automated ship systems take over, even though they can't find the captain of Riker, but they sounded a general, you know, red alert, get off the ship thing, so they're probably fine, right? Yeah. yeah that might just be in some, you know, corridor on the starbase that has shielding for some reason. Yeah. So the Enterprise leaves the dock, and instead of exploding, it warps away. Well, um, I guess uh, that's an alternative to exploding. But wait, our spaceship! Someone stole our spaceship! So Picard and Riker are hidden away in the holodeck, which is why they didn't notice anything. Uh, Picard mm -hmm. starts to leave. Manuite becomes more and more intense about how they have to stay, which of course prompts them to leave immediately. Yes. And discover that the ship is on red alert and everyone's gone. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, this seems to have been uh, some sort of trap or lure here. Uh, Minuet, uh, you, you've been an evil hologram. That's clearly what's going on here. So Minuet admits that she was programmed by the Bionars as a distraction, uh, but she also doesn't know why. Well, uh, someone set this uh, hologram to evil, but uh, we'll have to worry about that later. Our ship might be exploding, so, you know. Back on the starbase, Data notices that the Binars are also gone, which would suggest mm. that they're on the Enterprise. <laughs> Whoops. Well, uh, this is a pretty big starbase, though, uh, but everyone seems to be just kind of hanging out in one room together. He's oh. also uh, able to intuit that since the Binars are gone, maybe they should send a ship to intercept the Enterprise at the Binar homeworld, which is oh, probably where they're sense. going. Yeah. <laughs> so Picard and Riker begin retaking the ship. They uh, start by setting an auto-destruct sequence in case they can't regain control. Uh, yeah, I guess that's... I mean, it makes sense. Someone hostile's taken over the ship. Blow it up. Indeed, yeah. You don't want, you know, the flagship of the Federation to be, you know, falling into someone's uh, nefarious hands. Uh, and then it's like, oh, yes, uh, the Enterprise attacked our border outpost. So why did the Federation do that? Well, it wasn't us. Are you sure? It's your flagship. Come on, guys. Yeah. This time, though, instead of having to take 10 minutes of intense eye contact with every single person on the bridge going, yes, set the self-destruct code like they did in the original series, yes, it's just two a, of them <laughs> hitting buttons. They go like, yeah, do it, confirm, yeah, do it, and it's on. Yes. Uh, though they do have a specific time limit for it uh, that they can't seem to change. So, yeah. you know, that, that's that kind of annoying. Yeah, maybe they needed a computer upgrade to fix that. So the bridge is locked. Uh, Riker and Picard decide to beam into the bridge instead of go through the turbo lifts. So they go to two separate parts of the bridge to serve as distractions for each other. It's a pretty good good plan, actually. Yeah. They materialize to find the Binars unconscious and in a pile on the floor. Oh, gosh, yeah, we had this tactical thing all uh, dreamed up and, you know, we're rarely going to use it later. But, you know, even the people who were trying to ambush, they're like already kind of like unconscious. So, uh. Jeepers. It also leads you to wonder. So this time they're like, we'll be very strategic. We're going to beam down on opposite sides of the bridge so that they have to split their focus and two of us can take on a larger group with the element of surprise and splitting their attention, etc. Mm -hmm. Literally any other time they beam into what they know is a hostile situation, every single <laughs> one of them is just in a clump in the middle of the room. Yep. <laughs> 
Well, this is maybe one of those examples where a tactic is brought up in Star Trek and used once, and independent if it works or not, you know, just never used again. You can't, yeah, it's a one-time use sort of thing. Yeah, the the Federation has a very strict one-time use-it-or-lose-it policy. Yes. Oh, we found a secret vulnerability on this uh, death ship here. Uh, uh, okay, it, it worked. Let's never use this again. <laughs> so since the Binars are all unconscious, they decide that they're not enough of a threat and they shut down this auto-destruct. Oh, that's smart. And they enter orbit around Binus. It's a stupid name for a planet. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> also, why? Why didn't they name their planet One or something? That would yeah, make that would... sense, right? Yes. <laughs> well, maybe this is one of those weird, like, this is the translation and, you know, early Federation explorers were like, yeah, this is like an all binary sort of place here. And they're like, uh. let's just call it Binar. Yeah. <laughs> Or the planet is named Two. <laughs> Just a weird translation glitch. <laughs> Deep, complicated binary lore reasons that no one understands. Universe is two's compliant, you know. <laughs> so they enter orbit around Binus. The central computer's offline, and hmm. all the equipment is in shutdown. Also, the Enterprise computer is almost full of information. Their main computer, they could hold a lot. And they wait a minute, what's going on? So they head back yeah. to Minuet for some answers. She reveals that now she knows what's going on, apparently. Yes, and uh, her knowledge about jazz is not the only thing she knows. Well, before, it was like, I have no idea why you're being distracted. And they're like, okay, fine. Then like, you're lying. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> so a star nearby to Binus went supernova and basically made a giant EMP and wiped out their central computer core. They are so Whoops. dependent on their computer core, but they had no option but to upload all of their brain files, essentially, to another computer. The only large enough mobile computer was the one on the Enterprise because it's this giant, super advanced flagship. Yeah, so they probably like did some temporary storage with it on the uh, Starbase or something like that, S you know, slowly s smuggling in computer files. You know, for potentially weeks or months on end. And then the Enterprise is like, what to do? We're going to be late to our re computer refit. And they're like, jeepers, we should have come up with a darn plan. Ideally, they would have been able to do all this themselves. But the star went Nova early, and now they're here a bit too late. So all mm -hmm. the binars are knocked out. And now they need the two humans that they kept there for backup. That's a good plan. To yep. figure out what to do and reinitialize the binar computer. So basically, it's time for restart. They do not have the file name or password would have been a good thing to work out you know yes um minuet do you got that uh at all maybe nope <laughs> maybe next time they come and ask but you know we don't have time for that <laughs> some cards contacts the starbase to ask data for advice because data is magically always knows everything data suggests that they would have made it very simple and probably in binary because of their whole thing you know yeah their plan of hats you know <laughs> so they search and find the file name 11001001. I'm like, oh, could it be that simple? Let's find out. It's still not working. And Picard goes, wait a minute. They always work in pairs. What if I also turn the file on from this console? Well, it's convenient that there's two of us here then. Yeah. You know, if it was just Riker, this would be a doomed plan. Or Riker could have two hands. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. <laughs> So it finally works. Console. It's fine. <laughs> uh, the files are sent back to the planet. The binars all wake up. Hmm. Well, uh, so uh, binars, uh, you kind of like hijacked our ship. Uh, what do you have to say for yourselves? 
Well, Picard goes, you could have asked, you know. And they go, well, that would be great. But if you said no, we would have all died. So. Uh, well, huh. Well, I guess the prime directives would have suggested that's a possibility, huh? So they went, we're going to steal the Enterprise and face punishment if we need to, but at least the world will be saved. I guess that is uh, some moral sort of choice there, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. The Picard sets course back to the Starbase to reunite the crew. Riker heads back to the holodeck. Minuet's gone. Probably because the Binars were actively programming her, and now they don't need to anymore. Yeah, so it's you know, a different character entirely. Not the life that she had before. The perfect girl for Riker is now gone. Yep. And as Picard says, some relationships just aren't meant to work. Well, uh, I guess uh, we've learned a lesson. Uh, I, I don't know what it is, but I guess that's the one. And yeah. so some relationships just, yeah. Kind of just makes me think of the, the Futurama don't date a robot thing. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I guess we'll have uh, opportunities for, uh, you know, the, the question of, you know, dating uh, holograms, things like that uh, down the line, and especially in Voyager. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. It's something in that fact, they uh, play with a lot. Yeah, in fact, uh, even Janeway gets in on all that action. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that, that one, they always like, well, you are the captain. There's no other humans in, you know, millions of light years. So, you know, delete the wife. <laughs> you, uh, you keep refusing to let the writers pair you up with Chakotay, which is a good, good move on your part. Yes. <laughs> I think it would have been interesting if Janeway ended up with, like, Harry or something like that. <laughs> that would have been such a... He's the lowest ranked officer on the whole ship. <laughs> Yeah, there's some power dynamics going on, yeah, but, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, I, I want someone who's, like, knows they're at the bottom and they don't, and they're not going to be, you know, r- ranked up anytime soon because, you know, of our situation, so uh-huh. you're just okay with the situation. <laughs> what do you think about this, Harry? Don't hurt me. <laughs> I mean, that would have just been funny by the end of that if every single one of them was just a commander, but, you know, they had ranks of commanders to maintain exactly the same power structure but <laughs> yes <laughs> except for poor harry anyway <laughs> <laughs> poor harry but yeah back to, to this because that's for 10 years so it's got yeah. well i guess five <laughs> i guess we got like five years before we hit that one 10 years at the rate we go yes <laughs> so yeah overall i like the stakes i like the way that they handle the episode the holodeck mm-hmm. distraction makes as much sense as anything but the way that it's just the holodeck distraction is just a super hyper-sexualized woman instead of literally anything else. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't just let them have fun doing something. They had to have this random, random sexy woman. Indeed. Uh, I, I suppose, uh, you know, that it is kind of what Riker was asking for specifically. So they kind of had to bow to his whims. But at the same time, in terms of, you know, writing the episode sort of stuff, not in universe uh, explanations. Yeah, they could have had, you know, Riker go on a big adventure and, you know, you know, the adventure maybe lasts, you know, a third of the episode and we kind of cut back and forth between that uh, and the other stuff. Or we don't even, you know, hint that there's anything wrong. He's fully engrossed in the stuff here. And then it's like the adventure is over. And then the door opens up and he's like, why is there red alert? Uh... <laughs> Yeah, you could have done that. He's just playing D and D in there. You know how that goes. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Sometimes it could just oh, you know, last for a while. Or they could have made a giant maze. Mm-hmm. You are entering a jazz bar, but the jazz bar is a giant maze. 
And then you could have had the whole thing. Like, there's two binars. One always tells the truth, and one always lies. (laughs) (laughs) Behind one door is Minuet. Behind the other is not Minuet. (laughs) Well, you seem to be saying that this is the truth, so I'm guessing you're the one that tells the truth? Or are we? (laughs) So you did... You did hint at the thing earlier. There is a implied moral question of this episode, mm-hmm. which is they basically stole a ship and did something illegal in order to save their entire civilization. Yep. When they could have just asked for help. Yes. Uh, so uh, I guess you know, the, you know, the the question then is: Is it uh, better to uh, you know you know violate the rules in order to save lives, or you know, is it better to fo- follow the rules with the risk of not being able to save those lives? Well, the interesting thing here that you get into is whose rules. Exactly. Because these are the rules set up by the people in power. They are in power because they have better technology, which these people need to save themselves. Now, we know from the text of the show, the way this is set up, that yes, if they come and say, we need you to bring one of your ships to help us and do this thing so we don't all die, then... They'll say yes, and it'll all work out. But they don't explicitly have that. Apparently, that's not necessarily part of the Federation Charter or something. This isn't a complete certainty, according to the Binars. Or at least from their point of view, it's not a complete certainty. And when you're dealing with the death of your entire species, you kind of need a complete certainty. Yes. <laughs> you, you have this, this situation in which you have the ship, as we've said many times, is a stand-in for the United States. Mm-hmm. Um... We are supposed to think, oh, it's sad, it's wrong. They could have just asked for help, and they would have benevolently given that help, and that's all fine, and that's where the moral conundrum is supposed to come from. But there shouldn't really be any kind of moral conundrum. The particular problem is, why is that? Why do these people have to ask to be saved? Why is their life dictated by the strength of somebody else getting to decide whether or not they get help? Indeed. It would be nice to... Uh... You know, have a maybe a different dynamic here. Well, it's difficult to figure out the the basic idea, but the thing is, you're supposed to see this. It's not explicit. You don't explicitly have this, but this somewhat smacks of respectability politics. Oh, a certain degree, yeah. You know, if you uh, don't ask nicely, you're not going to get what uh, you know you believe you deserve, and we as the authorities uh, will might still de- deny it anyway because you know. The reasons. Yeah, we we know, both because of the text of the show and because the binars are cute, non-threatening, and gen- generally polite, that they would have definitely gotten help if they'd asked for it. But you still have the implicit idea that they could say no. And therein lies the problem. Mm-hmm. Because the fact that you have a even benevolent superpower, which is how the U.S. saw itself during this time period, late 80s, early 90s, the benevolent superpower that's definitely going to help out the little guy, they just have to ask. Yes, uh, as long as that little guy's not in bed with the Soviet Union. Yeah, that's true, too. <laughs> I'm saying this is how America wanted to perceive itself, yes, not yeah, what was actually but, going but, on. But, but, but everyone else, you know, they're cool. We got we got to help them because you know that means that you know, they're, if they're not in bed with the the Soviets, we're uh, you know they're fully on our side, and uh, yeah, so you know we'll we'll be helping them for sure, and not at all for our own self interest to make sure we can harvest their uh, local resources. And 
does this wind up in some complicated questions? Yes, because, you know, you do have what feels like, of course, natural inequity, especially when you reach a interplanetary scale. It does seem to make a little bit more sense. Whether or not it actually makes sense is something that you would have to do a lot more work on to decide. Mm-hmm. The idea in the show seems to be we aren't going to share like we're going to have technological inequity because we can't share our technology willy-nilly because we don't know what people will do with it and to a certain extent you can see the argument though it does um get into a human nature problem the idea that sharing advanced technology will necessarily lead to destruction um, is a problem that they kind of attribute to a species or society needing to evolve to a certain point, not needing to, uh, which gets into the same thing we were talking about an episode or two ago on the end of history that yeah. arguments mm-hmm. that a civilization will naturally just kind of work itself to the same natural equilibrium as every other society, and that will be the right and good and proper way to be, and then we can share technology with them all they want. Yeah, because uh, we're all on the same level in terms of our society, and that means we're going to be pals forever. But that does kind of ignore the social forces, social and political forces that go into there being these kinds of inequities. And mm-hmm. even the way that you might use technology poorly would be more the things that you as a society value rather than some idea of societal evolution. Mm-hmm. You know, in our society, we uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, to melt our uh, uh, convicts. Uh, so our, uh, our our melting technology is uh, something that we're you know that, you know proud of. And uh, you know, don't you dare use this to uh, to melt uh, people that we do not approve of in terms of uh, you know you know what what you might be using it. So we're not not going to be able to allow you to have this. Ah, <laughs> like what? So generally. <laughs> The idea here is like way for way earlier than we are exposed to things in this episode. We don't we don't know where the binars popped up from. We don't know if they're mm-hmm. Federation members. They really don't tell us anything about these people. Yes, they're but, a random planet of hats, and that's about all we get. But they demonstrate technological inequity in the universe because they do not have inherent unrestricted access to what they would need to be able to save themselves indeed yeah their computer is vulnerable to uh the supernova business here while you know hypothetically something like the enterprise would not be if you had a completely equitable situation you would not run into these kinds of of these kinds of questions because Mm -hmm. They would have already had the technology necessary to save themselves because that technology exists and they would have already had access to it, free and unrestricted access to Indeed. it. You know, and uh, if they had a, you know, a, you know, a galaxy class starship equivalent, uh, they could have just loaded up their computer files, flown off out of you know, danger and come back when everything was OK. You know, but they do not. That's a good question. Why not? <laughs> yeah, we don't know enough about the sociopolitical whatever's going on Mm -hmm. but you run into problems with the metaphor when you're working with stuff like this because why is there inequity we aren't presented with a particular reason beyond the federation chooses not to share its technology with some people yes now so maybe there is a prime directive uh thing going on here that you know that would you know since they do not have this technology themselves that they you know are not uh, federation members and thus, you know, the prime directive might be a question that they'd have to worry about 
which it would be an in-universe sort of big thing to point to about their own uncertainty. They don't do that explicitly in the episode, but it would make sense all the same. Yeah, and with the text that we get later, they're apparently a warp-capable species, which means that the non-interference stuff doesn't apply. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. At least not not at the same level, yeah. (laughs) But they still don't innately get to be saved. They would have to ask, yes, it is almost certain that the Federation would say yes to saving an entire civilization, but the fact that there is any kind of doubt demonstrates the sort of inequity that we're exploring. Yes. So, uh, Federation, why don't you just, uh, you know, let them have a computer that actually works? (laughs) Yeah, you could say that any civilization that reaches whatever warp-capable technology or doesn't have fundamentally contradictory values, like, say, we're demonstrated with the Romulans or Ferengi. You know, maybe have them uh, get a, a, a care package of, you know, you know, you don't have to join the Federation, but, you know, this will allow us to keep in touch and we'll make sure that, you know, you're not going to uh, run into a weird desperation situation that will, uh, you know, put your entire civilization at risk. So a basically a, a Wikipedia for some useful text to make to... Uh, uh, make sure your civilization doesn't just kind of get wiped out randomly. Yeah, your analogies fall down really quick yeah. <laughs> in Star Trek, which is one of the this is one of the problems that this series has when it's trying to talk about social inequity like this. Mm-hmm. Um, we we have no basis for being able to understand how it functions. It's in there as a metaphor. The basic premise of this episode is supposed to be, oh, they could have just asked. And I don't even know how we're supposed to feel about that. We're supposed to feel like they did something wrong because the end of the episode doesn't go, well, of course we understand and you won't face any repercussions for this. It's all fine, etc. They they kind of do imply they're going to be punished yeah. for this. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a hearing. <laughs> but uh, I, I would, if I was the Federation, you know, I would sort of have a big exception for alien natures in alien beings a sort of exception to, uh, you know, uh, you know, certain sorts of rules that, you know, sometimes it doesn't make sense for a type of uh, alien life to follow our rules because they don't, the, the concepts involved are just so foreign to them and uh, they could get it out there, but still that would have to be sort of a thing you would prove in the uh, trial and there'd still be risk of them, you know, ending up in a penal colony for, uh, you know, 20 years or something like that. Which would suck for them. Yeah, it would suck for them. (laughs) The general issue that you run into is um, when they're trying to do metaphors like this, Star Trek exists in a completely post-scarcity society, except when it doesn't. Yep. (laughs) And uh, I guess a lot of the times it doesn't is when you're either dealing with alien uh, planets like this uh, or random Earth colonies where they don't have anything and thus are vulnerable to being lasered by space entities or something like that. Uh, And a few other random exceptions. Yeah. I mean, if you're going off of some of the older ideas of, like, you know, um, levels of civilization, at this point, once you have something like a replicator, the literal only thing that anyone needs to worry about doing is generating energy. Yep. (laughs) It's like, you know, okay, so maybe we need some raw matter to transform through the replicator, but we can still do that provided we have the energy. Well... We have all sorts of future tech energy sources as is, so... eh? You apparently have access to not only thousands of stars, but uh, 
also matter-antimatter reactions, which should create near-limitless, pretty clean energy. Yeah. <laughs> Though there is a, sort of a, a, a wind-up uh, process when you think about uh, that sort of reactor system that you need like a, an ignition source in order to generate the antimatter in the first place. But anyway. <laughs> well, nobody knows where they're getting antimatter from. They never really <laughs> say. Yeah, the uh, I, I think there's uh, some tech manuals out there somewhere where it's like, yeah, they have these sort of fusion things that generate it through this process, but we don't really explain that, too. So basically magic. You can't even just scoop it like it exists. You can't have like whatever magnetic scoopy-doos, you know. Well, you know, a ram scoop uh, would be able to, uh, you know, potentially pick up some antimatter, but you'd have trouble of sorting it out from the matter that you're also scooping up. There's also a matter of, you know, quantities and, you know, relative mm. levels there. But anyway, we don't run in, we don't really get an explanation. There apparently is some stuff they can't synthesize, which I guess is where the scarcity comes back in, but we don't really get a idea of what those things are. Yeah, maybe it's, you know, the, the replicator needs to have specific types of atoms, so... It can replicate something with carbon pretty easily because that's a pretty common uh, material of the universe. But something with, you know, say, you know, seaborgium is going to be a little tricky. (laughs) I guess I don't have much of a point beyond. I think I disagree with the basic premise of the episode. Yeah. (laughs) They're trying to set up a moral conundrum that only exists because the Federation is too much of an unchallenged superpower. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe they should be uh, challenged and uh, it's like, you know, maybe you should share your resources a little bit better and, you know, maybe, you know, expand that universal love business or something like that. I don't know. Well, they try to hint at some of this stuff later, which is one of the problems that I, strong problems that I have with Deep Space Nine is they set up such juxtaposition between the, like, we're always getting everything from the perspective of the Federation in mm-hmm. these episodes, which is why we're supposed to sympathize so much with the superpower. Yep. Like, they want us to. When you get into DS9, when they're like, oh, there's some places outside of the Federation, as soon as you step foot outside of the Federation, you're in lawless, wild west Buck Rogers crap. Yep. <laughs> and it's such an unnatural, massive juxtaposition that it also makes little to no sense <laughs> so it's, it's almost like uh you know you know if you are uh, you know say uh, someone from a, a federation world and you decide to found a colony that is not federation uh you know, controlled influenced or part of it whatever uh you are only able to do that if you are trying to make a dystopia yes yeah <laughs> so uh yeah there's also i, I guess tasha yar's planet which we'll get to later in yeah, png uh, more I just feel like as a as a medium, Star Trek has a lot of really, really good points, and a lot of them are about upholding a strong moral center and how difficult that can be, even when you have unlimited power and resources. Indeed. That's a very good issue. You can you can look at that in a very complex way, and they tell a lot of really good stories around that later on, where it always falls apart is when it tries to look at any sort of social inequity because the world that they've set up doesn't even make sense for social inequity they're bad at telling stories around it and they're always coming from the 90s american idea of we are an unchallenged superpower can do whatever we want and the rest of the world is fine with this and yeah that's the yeah we are doing the moral good and thus we are unchallengeable yeah yeah (laughs) which Kind of circular logic. When it gets into 
good when we're getting into like good complicated questions it is okay you have the moral high ground and the power to do whatever you want with it now what well uh is it right to use this power and if it is uh how is it best to use it in a way that's going to be best for folks and by best for folks i mean you know the people that we're interacting with and ourselves and all that and oh gosh this is kind of spiraling out of control ah and you could have a very interesting discussion of that with something like this, where you have a actual discussion about what is the best thing to do with this. You could have like the binars apply for this and don't get it for some random bureaucratic reason. Picard thinks that's wrong. They go into a big discussion about why one should or shouldn't use your ultimate power to help others in need. And probably mm-hmm. eventually go against Federation orders and save them anyway, like you know Picard yeah. do. Maybe that's what the uh, the holodeck stuff is. You know, uh, maybe Riker in his wandering around is uh, you know it's like oh yeah you know, maybe I'll do a little jazz club and then you know it's like oh, I got bored of this move on to something else and then Picard shows up and saying hey I got got something here uh, maybe we can do sort of like a, a a you know a big sort of trial sort of thing. Uh, where we're uh, you know tackling some uh, some moral issues here, and then it turns out that the trial that they are uh, whatever they're you know doing there this tribunal uh, situation is basically a, a metaphor for what's actually happening outside the holodeck at that exact moment. <laughs> <laughs> or Picard like, huh. knew this was happening the whole time and showed up at the holodeck for plausible deniability. <laughs> <laughs> that would be an interesting twist, I think. Actually. <laughs> would have been better if they talked about it you can make up these things all you want but you yes <laughs> there's uh maybe we could uh, extend this into a two-parter somehow <laughs> anyway that's my thing i interrupted you yeah i, I got a couple things to maybe uh, touch upon here so uh so in this episode uh, we are introduced to uh you know uh, riker's interest in jazz a little bit here so what do you know about jazz Kepwin? uh i know that i think in the 1930s it's a quintessentially american Music came out of uh, nightclubs that largely featured African-American performers. It's kind of, a, I don't know the exact musical influences, but it comes out of a lot of, of African-American musical traditions. Um, in the 30s, it was largely seen as the downfall of white society. You know, like everything freaking yeah. is. <laughs> anything new and not the same is it the downfall of, the, of our, our modern world. It became particularly popular because a lot of clubs and bars were very, very integrated during Prohibition because you're already breaking the law. So what does yeah, it so. matter? <laughs> it's like, yeah, just hang out, guys. It's fine. <laughs> uh, later got co-opted by white people like everything does. Yes. It's like, oh, yeah, we got, uh, we're going to... Change this up a little bit, and we can invent rock and roll from it. Uh, bye, guys. Yeah, if I believe, yeah, yeah spun off into rock and roll, and I think to some extent disco, which yeah, remained yeah. African American and queer until that also got a lot of hatred because it was the downfall of moral society. Okay. <laughs> we seem to be running into the same trend over and over again. Hmm. But yeah, the uh, you know, I guess uh, other things I uh, want to mention. Uh, so, uh, you know, the is actually sort of spawned out a little bit earlier than the 30s but that's when it sort of became uh highly noticeable uh uh in sort of the uh middle uh, jazz age there uh but yeah since uh, the, the 1920s or even earlier it was sort of uh you know uh, percolating uh with uh influences from you know ragtime uh some blues 
you know, you know, African rhythm rit- rituals and things like that, where there's a mix of, you know, called response sort of stuff going on there. Uh, and, you know, also, you know, European influences, uh, you know, cause you know, we got like the bass player there. That's, you know, a very European sort of, you know, instrument there in the first place there. So it's sort of like, you know, so we combining all these things and just creating a fusion of new music with a, uh, you know, uh, sort of a, a, a new types of beats that aren't, you know, sort of the classical, you know, you know, uh, rhythms and harmonies anymore, but a little bit more wild, a little more jazzy, you could say. Uh, and so, you know, this sort of ended up in the long run sp- uh, spawning a number of different sort of subgenres. Uh, Minuet mentions not liking uh, Dixieland specifically, but, you know, that's kind of the tip of the iceberg in terms of uh, variants of jazz out there. Uh, you know, there's, you know, where it comes from in you know, t- terms of, uh, you know, where that particular type of jazz was, uh, you know, generated. Is this more of a blues interest, uh, you know, uh, uh, influence, uh, which does, you know, predate, you know, uh, I guess proper jazz, I guess, uh, those all kind of mixed together to a certain degree. Uh, or is this more of a ragtime interest or something, you know, you know uh, influence or something else? Uh, you know, w- you know, what city was this uh, sort of, you know, you know, uh, style sort of uh, generated in uh, primarily? You know, is it more uh, bebop sort of stuff? Is it more, you know, you know, influenced by uh, sort of the smooth, uh, smooth style? Is there more hard edges to it? You know, as you get further into like you know, uh, you know, post you know, uh, jazz age uh, eras, you get stuff where it starts building in with you know, suddenly you got jazz funk going on here, where you know, you like funk is sort of generated, you know, you know, been a, a musical genre developing on its own. We're kind of swinging back, m- meshing them together here, and so it's sort of a genre of music that is still evolving, you know, to the modern day, uh, and you know, it's a complicated and rich history that is way too long and complicated to sort of go into all here. But, uh, you know, I did definitely wanted to sort of, you know, get our international uh, listeners uh, a little bit of a clue about what even is jazz. True. I think it's yeah. gotten <laughs> further than America at this point, but yes, oh, it is, certainly. Uh, but you know, but I'm talking about like the origins of things like that. It is yeah. a quintessentially <laughs> American form of music. Mm-hmm. And of course, like all quintessentially American things, that means African American. Yes. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like, we're not just going to keep repeating the same thing. We're going to kind of do our own thing. And, uh, Oh, you're, you're taking it again. <sighs> but you know, I, you know, I don't, I'm not an expert at jazz by any, uh, you know, stretch of the imagination, but generally I've, uh, generally enjoyed the jazz I've been exposed to over the course of my life. Um, with the one exception of the jazz band from high school, uh, mainly because it was kind of really easy jazz and thus boring. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm not saying, you know, easy jazz is necessarily boring, but you know, when you're dealing with, you know, uh, you know, folks who are not steeped in the genre or any of the culture or, you know, are still new to the instruments, you're not going to get something that's going to be, um, you know, I guess really jazzy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's sort of a, like, this is almost like down tempo in terms of like emotion here. So, uh, occasionally we might have someone, uh, you know, try to do a, a cool, uh, solo and that's maybe the highlight of the song, but the rest of it's like, eh, that's killed some time, I guess. Hmm. I thought I didn't like it as a genre for the longest time, even though it's a super wide, varied genre. So that's a pretty, yeah, it's like a super genre to think about music, but 
It's because the news radio station there I grew up used to play, used to switch over to jazz music at night after midnight. Mm-hmm. But it was very like complicated, free form, super advanced. I'm not exactly sure what terms to use, but like definitely not the stuff you would use as an introduction for someone. Yeah. You know, and that was my first exposure when I was young. I was like, what is this? I can't even hear notes. What's going on? Yeah, there, there is a, uh, you know, sort of improvisational uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, component uh, to uh, jazz. Uh, you know, it's a, a genre that you know, sometimes you're like, I'm going to kind of just kind of do the thing. And then there's sort of a subgenre too that's like, that's going to be most the tune, actually. <laughs> so, you know. So I guess uh, that's, you know, sort of you know, one thing I wanted to bring up. Uh, but uh, the other thing uh, that we might get into more uh, extensive time later is uh, questions of informed consent. Mm. Because uh, I guess the, the question is, the binars here, they got like literally part of their brain scooped out and replaced by a computer. Probably when they're quite young. Yeah, probably. So, yeah, so uh, there's probably some compre- uh, parental consent here. Uh, or as a society, they're like, we're just not going to worry about that anymore. We're all going to be like this. You have no idea how they reproduce yeah. at this point. True. Maybe maybe they ha- build a computer and it just grows another binar around it. Could be. You don't. <laughs> uh, they they never bring the binar up again. It seems like the kind of thing that you might think about when you start encountering Borg. Yes. <laughs> uh, I've heard a joke that's like they're they're c- cyborgs uh, intent on using our technology, and uh, it's like, but yes, uh, you know that's true, but. We don't assimilate others. We just do it to little babies. <laughs> I mean, we have no idea how or when it's done or if it's something that you can opt into or not. Or mm-hmm. they say that it's inextricably linked to their biology at this point. So, uh, you know, maybe they're not able to survive without these, uh, you know, modifications. Uh, mm-hmm. Like their brain won't develop properly or something like that. You do have a bit of a thing, too. Like, yeah, they're do- they're supp- they're probably doing some sort of surgeries or integrations. We have no idea how this functions. Mm-hmm. But then it's also so innately tied to the culture of their species. It's in some, like, well, this isn't the perfect analogy, but imagine if you had to opt in as a baby to learning your native language or not. Like, yeah. that's not really something that you would choose because even if you didn't want to, it would leave you completely in a bit like if a complete inability to interact with the society around you. Indeed. So, uh, you know, there, there is, you know, you know, questions to hear about consent, but there is also still a, there are other factors that are, uh, applicable here that you know, are sort of overriding of that sort of, uh, you know, question. Um, but, uh, I guess there is, you know, still potentially the inverse question of, could a binar parent say, no, I don't want them to get the, uh, the computer brains here? Yeah, we have no idea, actually. Which makes it a difficult analogy. Um, Indeed. This gets into a very complicated issue. For there, there is a very obvious human analogy here for what we're doing, but it gets into some very complicated places. <laughs> yes. So maybe not uh, something to really delve into on this particular episode. Yeah, I feel like there might be some better places to talk yes. about that one because i don't know if we have the i would want to put some research time into that yes. topic <laughs> so uh i guess uh this is a a we're gonna file this away for later sort of thing here and uh we'll remember this episode so maybe you should too yeah we could possibly maybe we should start doing some side episodes if here's the thing that we but we actually need to do some <laughs> research to talk about yeah <laughs> 
Maybe we could do that between seasons. I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. So uh, should I talk more about jazz? Sure. Why not? Right. Yeah. Well, going to scat at something. Yeah. You no. Know, uh, that is a uh, yeah, another outgrowth there. Uh, I was more going to like uh, you know just kind of hum along uh, a tune I know, and uh, and then I also remember that. I was listening to some ragtime before I uh, got on the call here and I was like, yeah, there's some cool stuff there. And it's like, it's like, I didn't really recognize that the, you know, this uh, was actually a ragtime song. That's kind of awesome. And it's like kind of dainty and you know, happy. And just like, you know, there's a, just a you know, single piano player going at it. And it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, lo- I'm loving this here. Uh, and that, you know, that becomes the, some of the basis of future music. And I'm like, there's so much here that I, can't possibly compress it all into a single episode's discussion. Oh gosh, maybe this will have to be a, a running theme. While uh, anytime a Riker does something jazz related, you will get a million chances to talk about it with, yes. with Riker in this show. <laughs> do, 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 do. Riker and jazz. <laughs> Though with the way that they do his jazz integration on lower decks, he can never go any other speed but warp eight. <laughs> what? Two, one, two, three. <laughs> that would get annoying. I yes. like, I'm glad that they have it in a comedy show. Yes. <laughs> My question is, is he going to do it in Picard? Hmm, I guess we'll have to uh, wait and see on that uh, for the next season. Anyway, anybody hmm. who's not watching Lower Decks, like Riker shows up as a captain. And he does a count in to yes. <laughs> tell them to go to warp. And it's very Five, funny. Six, but, seven, eight. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Uh, they do mention binars at one point uh, during Lower Decks, uh, sp- specifically bad binars. Yeah, well, because they just mention things in Lower Decks. It's half the yes. show. <laughs> True. It's what they do. But now I'm wondering what that would be like. Binar pirates. are <laughs> Just kind of what we have this episode. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, it's, so, so basically, Mariner's talking about this specific series of events. Got it. Right, it seems like we've run out of other things to talk about, so. Yes, and uh, I can't hum too much more jazz here without, you know, just sounding awful. Anyway. <laughs> all right, well, then it's probably time for us to distract you all with the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. Uh, we got several prizes to hand out here because our contestants have been racking up lots and lots of points. So many points that, uh, you know, we you know, can't even fit them in the whole club here. Hmm. Anyway, uh, the uh, first prize is the uh, Could Have Asked prize, which goes to the Binars, though their natural precludes the taking of on any risk with respect to getting help. Uh, the whole discussion about, you know, this Federation being a superpower. And also, you know, this is a Star Trek episode, so we need, like, a plot of some sort. So what do they win, Gepwin? I win a shielded computer. That seems like it should just be standard for any spacefaring species. Indeed. Why does your computer go down if there's a supernova anywhere nearby i mean given galactic scale nearby must be at least 17 or 18 light years generally uh, especially if you don't want your planet to also be like you know bombarded with you know random bits of you know fluff from the star itself and all that and so technically you should have you know years and years to prepare for a supernova impact on your planet but you know whatever our second prize <laughs> is the TV love story prize, which goes to the doomed romance between Riker, Minuet, Picard, and the guy on base. Well, what do they win, Gapwin? 
they win the TV sitcom reset because you know it's a it's an amazing love story it's great everything's perfect and then they have to reset it by the end of the episode so you never have to worry about it or think about it again indeed you know uh uh basically uh unless it's between main characters any love story on star trek is basically doomed forever our uh, final prize is the debt to the opposition prize which goes to war for making that game of Reese squares a l- you know maybe taking it a little too seriously or was he joking? Dun dun dun. With Worf at this stage, we don't really know yet. Later, yeah, I'd be joking, but you know, this stage, who knows? Anyway, get yeah, but what does Worf win? Worf gets some inquiries. This keeps happening. People keep dying around him. It's hmm. all accidents. You know, Parisi Square is a dangerous game. Yes, but we should look into this a little. Nothing's proven. Yeah, what if Worf was uh, put here by some sort of uh, you know, you know, nefarious uh, you know, entity, organization, or you know, time traveler uh, uh, group to basically make sure that certain people didn't make it out of sports events? <laughs> That's an interesting hmm. sci-fi short story. <laughs> <laughs> but why sports events? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. Just coincidence, maybe. <laughs> anyway, that's all I got for this time. Uh, well, you know, go ahead and take us away, Gepwin, and uh, make sure to uh, hum some jazz as you do. Thanks to everyone for competing, listening along, and joining us for the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! So, what are we doing next week, Gepwin? Next week is an episode called Too Short a Season. Hmm. Um, which no one particularly remembers because it's sort of dumb. It's one of those that's just kind of there, really. Yeah. Has some questionable age makeup. Oh, you gotta make it work somehow, and uh, it still looks really, really awkward. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> So, but uh, it's you know, but it's it's not the sort of uh, age makeup where we had in the original series because it's going in the opposite direction. Oh, yeah. <sighs> yes. Except it's not because you you start with the dawn and then take it off slowly through the episode. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, hmm. this is the episode with the de aging admiral. Yes. Uh, so uh, I'm not quite sure if we should really uh, you know uh, label him as one of the. Uh, the bad admirals uh, that uh, sometimes show up in Star Trek, where they are, you know, saying they get ranked up and they just become evil for some reason. Um, but you know, it does have some stuff going on here, so there's an episode. So okay. there's some stuff happening. There's some questions. It's kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting idea. But uh, overall, the episode doesn't ha- isn't handled well. They don't talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of around. It's got a guy from Trouble with Tribbles in it. Yeah. So I, I guess that's something to look forward to. Oh. I guess. <laughs> Maybe we could just talk about Trouble with Troubles again. Yeah, de aging <laughs> admiral. That's that's it's fine. Not the one you're thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> admiral April. You're getting yeah. younger. Yeah, it's the de aging episode. Not that one yeah. and not that one. Because <laughs> I know the two you're thinking of, and it's neither yes. of those. <laughs> It's the other one that no one remembers. <laughs> yes. It's the one that you think you remember, and then you start watching it, and then you're like, wait a minute, wasn't this guy a vampire? Oh, wait, no, that was a different one. <laughs> hmm. So, uh, too short a season. It's uh, 
too long of an episode, maybe? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. It's definitely there. Yeah. <laughs> also, hostages. Yeah, there are some hostages. There's some weird stuff in this one. It, it gets into a few some of the stuff we were talking about. I mean, it gets into some of America's like not great in, in uh, po- political decisions and mm-hmm. and things. It just frames them around something very stupid and yeah, difficult so, to follow. So, so maybe we'll have more to talk about there. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's going to be next week when we have to figure out what to say about the magic de-aging admiral. No, not that one. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, oh, to be young again. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists. <laughs> <laughs>